I do want to thank Peter for leading us this morning, and uh, as he said right at the beginning, if, if you were here, uh, this is our final week in the Unforced Rhythm series uh, on spiritual disciplines. As I said last Sunday night, I'm kind of sad that we've come to the end of this series. Uh, I've really enjoyed revisiting these kind of personal and interpersonal vital practices of, of Christian faith. Uh, and so for the last time, here on the screen are the four reasons why we did this series right from September last year until this morning. Here are the four reasons for doing spiritual disciplines, for godliness, for intimacy, because Jesus did them, and because they guard our hearts. And so the aim all along has not been to see more people doing more spiritual disciplines. The hope has always been to see more people becoming more godly, to see more people growing stronger in their personal relationship with God, and seeing more people becoming more like Jesus, and seeing more people with their hearts protected. So, so the question is, has that happened? Has that happened? Are you more godly this morning than you were four or five months ago because you have engaged in and practiced spiritual disciplines? Well, in a sense, only God can answer that. Only you can answer that. But it is my hope and prayer that this will keep happening and that spiritual disciplines will continue to be part of our rhythm of life. By the way, there are a few more of these books <laughs> available this morning. So if you never, actually, we kind of based the series on this book. Lots of people bought it. If you never got around to buying a copy, last chance this morning. And also, actually, as Gordon reminded us a few weeks ago, in the introduction to this book, it suggests that you read it at least three times. So if you've read it once, you've only two more times to go. If you've never read it, then do grab a copy this morning. And also, we have some of these journals left, and if you didn't get one or refused to, uh, now, now, now is the chance, and both of those, I think, are available this morning for a tenner, so if you do, do want them. It's never too late to begin a new habit. Uh, so as I think it was Richard then said, today as we close the series, we're going to look at two final disciplines today, tonight, submission, and then this morning, it's forgiveness. Kind of nervous about this one. And uh, as we turn to it, I need to say a couple of things by way of introduction. Uh, I'm aware, and I need to be sensitive to the fact that the moment you mention forgiveness, there will be a number of people who immediately realize this is going to be difficult. And there's maybe even some people here this morning, and, and right at the start of the service, whenever Peter said, David's going to be speaking on forgiveness, there may be some people here think, Right, see when we stand for the next song, I'm going to slip out. Because there will be people here today who have been or who are being badly treated, are being hurt, are being wrongly accused. People who have been, people who are being betrayed, offended, <coughs> sinned against. And therefore, the prospect of hearing about the discipline of forgiveness and the need to forgive is unsettling. This is a raw issue for some of you. And I know that because I've spoke to a few of you. 
But I've no doubt that it's a, a raw and real issue for, for many, many people. And although I appreciate that, I still want to raise it. I still want to talk about it. I still want to encourage it for lots of reasons, but primarily because without this discipline, two things happen. Without this discipline, two things happen. The first thing is we rip the heart out of Christianity. And the second thing is that we risk damaging ourselves at so many levels, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. You see, unforgiveness is always self-destructive. Unforgiveness is always self-destructive. The other thing that I want to make clear is that no one sermon, no one talk on this subject is going to answer every question, explain every aspect, deal with every detail. And so I need you to be forgiving. As Elizabeth O'Connor says, despite a hundred sermons on forgiveness, we do not forgive easily nor find ourselves easily forgiven. Forgiveness, we discover, is always harder than the sermons make it out to be. And so, can I say right up front, I am not going to stand up here this morning. And although I passionately believe in the importance of forgiveness, I'm not going to stand up here this morning and say, this is going to be easy, particularly for some people. So, as we begin to address this and unpack it, uh, and I, I came across a really kind of helpful article during the week, which, which I've, uh, I'm drawing on and adapting to a certain extent. But as I said a few moments ago, forgiveness is at the very core of Christianity. It, it's central. I mean, it's, it's central to this table. It's central to what we have just done in eating and drinking together. What did we sing just before we ate and drink together? Jesus you were forsaken so that I may be forgiven. Our sin left us guilty before a holy God. Our sin has left us disconnected. Our sin leaves us eternally lost. Our sin leaves us in desperate need of one thing. I mean, many things, but, but one thing in particular our sin leaves us in need of, and that is forgiveness. Because of our guilt, every single person ever, but because of our guilt before a holy God, our desperate need is for, for forgiveness. But because Jesus, the Lamb of God, who has taken away the sin of the world, has laid down his life on a cross, we can be forgiven. Ransom, healed, restored, forgiven. None of us deserve it. None of us warrant it. None of us have earned it. But by the amazing grace of God, every single one of us this morning can stand here forgiven at the cross. Forgiveness is dead center of Christianity. It's right at the heart of our hope. It's right at the core of our faith. It's central. And so whenever you then read words that I'm about to show you. Words from Colossians 3 that are echoed in Ephesians 4. As you read what I'm about to show you, as a forgiven person, as a forgiven child of God, these words surely send a shiver down your spine. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. As the Lord, in another translation, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. I mean, the bar 
I mean, to say the bar is set high is an understatement. And so however we approach this subject, this issue this morning as Christians, we've got to keep coming back to this radical thought. This explicit command. We have been forgiven. And so we must forgive. And if we, if we don't get that first point, if we don't realize how much we have been forgiven and the fact that we are forgiven, we are never, ever going to be able to practice this discipline. So forgiveness is central, but forgiveness is also a command. As we tease this out further, we've got to go to the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer, because again, forgiveness lies at the heart of it. And so we pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Plus, if you look at that section of teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, known as the Sermon on the Mount, if you actually look at that whole section of teaching from verse 12 of Matthew 6 through to verse 15, you discover that forgiveness is mentioned as referenced six times. Here it is. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil one and then this bit. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you and then the sting. But if you do not forgive others their sin, your father will not forgive your sins. You see, we must seek forgiveness, we must extend it, and the consequences of not forgiving others is extreme. In fact, nothing short of catastrophic in terms of the big picture and eternity. If we do not forgive others, our Father in heaven will not forgive us. This discipline is essential. And then as you explore it further, you, you kind of get to Peter, the disciple we all love, the disciple so many of us are drawn to because he's so honest at times, isn't he, with his questions and his outbursts. And on this issue, Peter struggles. And in a famous moment, whenever he's clearly struggling with it, he turns around to Jesus and he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive a brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times, Jesus? And we all know how Jesus replies. What does he say? I tell you not seven times, but how many? 77 times in some translations, 70 times seven in others, 490 times. The point being, it's not a literal number of times you need to forgive. But according to Jesus, you forgive as often as needed. You forgive as often as needed. So this discipline's essential. And as you continue to kind of build or form a biblical basis for it, we also have got to note how it keeps being taught and it keeps being reinforced as a key Christian practice and command throughout the New Testament. And, and here's another text I've referred to it that it comes under a section of teaching in Ephesians where the writer Paul is instructing Christians on what it actually means to live as a Christian. And so he says this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Again, that sounds so similar to what we read earlier from Colossians 3. This discipline is a must. It's a must. 
you got to forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, you have been forgiven, and so you've got to forgive. All of us are going to need to practice it. And the reason all of us are going to need to practice it is because all of us have been offended. Every person sitting here this morning has been sinned against. I know that. The scale of the offense, the level of the offense, the specifics of your offense, it is specific. They are all different as we sit here this morning. And what is personal to you is incredibly personal, but let's be honest. Who here has never been hurt by someone else? Who here has never been lied to? Who here has never been mistreated? Who here has never been offended? And more than that, how many of us here this morning have never done any of that to another person? And before I kind of pause, if you like, from laying down a biblical basis for practicing it, because that's the only basis I can lay down. There's no point me standing up here and giving my opinion. But I cannot talk about forgiveness without referring to our always ultimate example, Jesus, who didn't just teach about it. Yes, he did teach lots about it, but he didn't just teach about it. He modeled it. And so whenever he was hurt and whenever he was abused and whenever Jesus was sinned against and whenever Jesus was offended in a most shocking way, he cried out those arresting words to God, Father, forgive. In his darkest, loneliest, most excruciatingly painful moment, Jesus extended forgiveness. Jesus practiced this discipline. And therefore it stands before us who claim to live in God and therefore must walk as Christ walked, it stands before us as a discipline we simply must practice if we are authentic Christians. Now before we we do take a closer look at what it actually is, plus what it isn't, let me highlight why it's so hard. And what are the dangers of not practicing it? You see, at one level, forgiveness makes little or no sense. It makes little or no sense to forgive someone who's hurt you. It's why it's far more common in our culture to practice unforgiveness. In his book, many of us have read What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey writes, unforgiveness plays like a background static of life for families, doesn't it? For nations, for institutions, unforgiveness is sadly our natural state. We nurse sores. We go to elaborate lengths to rationalize our behavior, to perpetuate family feuds, to punish ourselves, to punish others, all to avoid the most unnatural act of forgiving. Forgiveness isn't natural. Doesn't make sense, partly because it runs contrary to what we feel and what we believe should be done. All of us have a desire to make things right. Deep down, most of us want to put things right. But whenever you've been wronged, whenever you've been badly wronged, whenever you've been unfairly treated, forgiveness just doesn't seem like the fair and right thing to do. The more natural things to do are what? They're to get even. Hold a grudge. Retaliate, become resentful. Show displeasure. Get angry. And I'm not suggesting none of those are appropriate or understandable up to a point. But the danger is resentment can lead to bitterness. Anger can lead to sin. 
And unless we handle this properly, unless we handle this biblically, unforgiveness will fester, it will affect us, and it will damage us mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. I think it's Lee Strobel who says this about people who struggle to forgive. They don't hold the grudge as much as a grudge holds them. You see, unforgiveness is self-destructive. Ultimately, it's self-destructive. Bitterness, resentment, holding grudges, what those things tend to do is they eat up us. They eat us up. They stress us out. Maybe not initially, but you know, definitely in the long term. And so what does the Bible strongly warn Christians to do with bitterness? The Bible is really clear on this, on what we should do with bitterness. Listen to these words from Ephesians 4, and this is not just what we do with some bitterness. Get rid of all bitterness. Rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. And then Paul goes on to say exactly how you do that, and we read it earlier. Paul says, here's how you get rid of all bitterness. You forgive each other. Bitterness and deep resentment and anger that spills into sin are major dangers of not practicing this discipline. Do you know why they're major dangers of not practicing this discipline? Not just that they eat us up, not just that they stress us out, but unforgiveness defiles us. This is strong. But unforgiveness makes Christians unclean. And therefore, a huge risk to our spiritual well-being and health. Let me read you some words from the writer, the writer of Hebrews. These were new to me words that I came across this week. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root, root causes, grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See, the danger of not forgiving is that a bitterness grows. And it happens so easy. And we do feel angry, and, and anger in itself is not the problem, but it's in your anger, don't sin. And when we don't forgive, it's so easy to become bitter and resentful. And the minute that grows, you become defiled. So it's central to our faith. It's a command of our faith. But thirdly, and let's be very clear about this, forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is a choice we make. It's a decision we take. It's a choice that we make to release our right to, to collect the debt that someone owes us. Can I, can I just say that again? Because this is really important. Forgiveness is a choice we make to release our right to collect the debt that someone owes us. You see, whenever someone sins against us, whenever someone does something wrong to us, hurts us, mistreats us, abuses us, they become indebted to us to make things right. They are obligated to us to make things right. You see, this is one of the reasons why the Lord's Prayer, the Disciples' Prayer, in an older translation, I actually used it earlier on the screen, says this, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
And that language helps us understand exactly what's going on here. You see, whenever we are sinned against, we have the right to be repaid, yes, but whenever we choose to forgive our debtor, we make the choice to let go of our right. What's really important to remember is that although we may dismiss our right to collect our debt, we are not dismissing our debtor's moral and spiritual responsibility to make things right. Now, this, this is where the tension is, and this is where it's so difficult. We may dismiss our right to collect our debt, but we are not dismissing our debtor's moral and spiritual responsibility to make things right. What we are effectively doing when we choose to forgive is we are turning our right to collect our debt over to God. And we're leaving it with God, and we're saying, God, you sort this out. I choose to forgive that person, but I leave this situation, I leave this person with you, because that way I know justice will be done. Because God, you are the only true and righteous judge. And so forgiveness is a choice, and it's a brave choice, and it's a courageous choice, and it is an unnatural choice, but it's a choice to release our right to collect the debt that someone owes us. It's, a, it's our choice to say, Father, as we also have forgiven our debtors, but it doesn't mean we have released that person from their moral, legal, spiritual obligations. They are still indebted to God. And the judge of all the earth will do right with them. That is now a matter between them and God, so to speak. And it's forever going to be a matter between them and God. Plus, I do know, depending on what it is they've done against us, that they may be indebted to society, but we leave that to society. So forgiveness is a choice. It's a command, but it is a choice we make whether or not to obey it. What this means is forgiveness is not, and I want to list a number of things that forgiveness is not, but what this means, it's, it's sent with a command, it's a choice, but what this definitely means is com- forgiveness is not a feeling. God never commands us to feel like forgiven. I'll guarantee you there's not one person here this morning who's been hurt who ever, ever feels like forgiven. If you wait until you feel like it, You'll never follow through on this command. You see, forgiveness requires, and I think Peter actually prayed this as he prayed earlier. Forgiveness requires obedience, humility and obedience to set aside my right for repayment and to set aside the tendency to allow my feelings to dictate because they so easily do. But you see, whenever you choose to forgive others their debts, What you're actually choosing is freedom. Someone has said, when you forgive someone, the person offering forgiveness is the one who's released from bondage. When we extend forgiveness to the one who has hurt us, we are to expect nothing in return. The prize is our freedom, which kind of circles back to something I said earlier, because the alternative to forgiveness is unforgiveness. And whenever we withhold forgiveness, whenever we hold on to those grudges and the resentment and the bitterness, we effectively are choosing bondage and slavery for ourselves. And the only person that we can be sure of hurting is not the person who has hurt us. The only person we can be sure of hurting when we hold on to unforgiveness is ourselves. And so therefore, forgiveness ultimately benefits us every time. 
So forgiveness is a choice. In response to a command, it's, it's not a feeling. You're never going to feel like forgiving anyone. Second thing it's not is it's not a one-time event. Back to Peter. Back to Matthew 18. We are to forgive another person no matter how many times they sin against us. 490 times and then some. You see, a literal reading of Colossians 3.13, a literal reading, the tense says, keep on forgiving one another. This is a continual process. Doesn't mean we passively sit back, we take it. And we keep taking it. In many situations, we may need to challenge others. We may need to take practical steps to distance ourselves from certain people and situations. But in terms of forgiving that person, it's never a one-time event. Another thing forgiveness is not, it's not forgetting. God commands us to forgive, but he never commands us to forget. See, sometimes people don't think they've forgiven someone because they can't forget what they did to them. And the reality is when people hurt us deeply, we simply can't forget it. We can't wipe it from our minds. We don't have the ability to do that. Yet God can say, as far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you. Does that mean God forgets? I'm not entirely sure. But he obviously pushes way, way. For us, human beings, can we forget when someone hurts us badly? No. There may be situations and experiences you will never forget. But sometimes over time, memory can weaken with regard to certain offenses whenever we choose to forgive. And the other reason why forgiveness is not forgetting if, is because if it was, then someone might take advantage of our forgiveness by repeating certain offenses. And then when they're challenged about their behavior, they might turn around and say, well, it's not right for you to bring up the past because you said you forgive me. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Two more things is not um, done. Forgiveness is not trust. Sometimes people don't forgive because they don't or can't trust another person. Doesn't, shouldn't work like that. You see, trust is something a person earns. Forgiveness is not. Forgiveness requires mercy and grace. Mercy means withholding what someone deserves. Grace is unmerited favor. To forgive someone is an act of mercy and grace. Trust doesn't come into it. In fact, going back to the example of Jesus, Jesus forgave everyone. Jesus did not trust everyone. Listen to this verse, the words of the apostle Paul, John. This is John 2, 24, for those who are to note. But Jesus would not entrust himself to those people, for he knew all men. Yeah, Jesus, Jesus forgave. Jesus didn't always trust people. Forgiveness is not trust. People earn trust. Forgiveness is different. Forgiveness is not something anyone has earned any more than it is something we have earned. And finally, forgiveness is not reconciliation every single time. There's no doubt that genuine forgiveness indicates a willingness to reconcile provided certain conditions are met. 
Reconciliation may be desirable, but reconciliation by definition must include forgiveness, it must include repentance, and the making of amends for any wrongs done. It needs to flow in two directions. It requires two people, two parties, which isn't always the case, doesn't always happen. Plus, although we should choose to forgive a person despite how difficult that might be, there are times whenever it would be incredibly unwise to be reconciled to that person. So there are some things, forgiveness, it's not. It's not a feeling. It's not a one-time event. It's not forgetting. It's not trust. And it's not reconciliation. It may lead to it, but it's not the same thing. And maybe I should have added, I mean, the most obvious thing. (laughs) The most obvious thing that forgiveness is not is what? It's not easy. It's hard. But the alternative is self-destructive. And I don't, I don't mean to be melodramatic either, but you see, whenever you withhold forgiveness, whenever you don't practice this discipline, the enemy rejoices. There is nothing Satan loves more than to see Christians refuse to forgive. There is nothing Satan loves more than to see Christians become bitter and resentful and holding grudges and allowing those things to fester. Nothing he loves more. Forgiveness may never change another person, but it will always change us.